Hello there, Lee. Hi, Mick. How are you? I'm not so bad, Lee. Thank you so much for making yourself available for this. Oh, that's okay. Fine. It's the second time we've actually had a chat. The uh, the last time was 1978 in Los Angeles when you were uh, about to embark on the Some Girls Tour. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that's where I am now, actually. <laughs> oh, you're in LA now, are um, you? Yeah, I just arrived last night. At the time, yeah. you were staying at uh, Linda Ronstadt's house. I think you, you'd rented that for the duration. And uh, I remember when I turned up, you grilled me about Australian history. You asked me where the gold rush started. No, did I? Awful. <laughs> well, at least now I know that Castlemaine is where the gold rush started. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I must have read a book or something about Australia at that point. <laughs> a bit yeah. before the fatal shores. So it can't have been that. Uh, no, I don't think it was that. No. <laughs> So, long time ago. So, once again, uh, thanks for making your time available, and I appreciate it. It's pretty tight. First up, Mick, 1962 was the year that the band started, and uh, the roots of the band were very much in blues and also jazz when we look at the other guys in the band as well. Yeah. It must have been a very strange transition for you as uh, as things changed very rapidly in the 60s. Well, you know, musically, though we, we had to build ourselves as a blues band, and we were a blues band, we always played you know, rock music, you know, what we thought was, we didn't really, we didn't really try and categorize it too much. You know, we used to play everything. We played Buddy Holly, we played Chuck Berry, we played, you know, everybody. But in those days, we had to sort of say we were a blues band and mostly play blues because we were performing in in these jazz clubs and that's what they were looking for. You know, they didn't want a rock band. So it wasn't sort of like some major thing that we were just a blues band that suddenly played rock, and we'd always played rock. But, you know, things. what we really did sort of branch out into in a funny way was when we started writing songs, was going into what was really pure pop. And that's what we had never done. And that attracted a very different audience for you as well. It must have felt bizarre to be all of a sudden chased down the street by 14-year-old teenage girls. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was mad, pretty mad. I mean, in that documentary film, The Crossfire Hurricane, that it's pretty good, the documentation of that period, the, the, the film we made, we made last year, but it really brings it home to how sort of crazy it was and how, you know, we used to do, starting off playing in blues clubs and playing, you know, a couple of hours of blues, and then suddenly we were playing like four pop songs and then chased off the stage. And it was kind of hilarious, but it was... Uh, yeah, sometimes pretty sort of scary and, and hairy, but, you know, it was a lot of fun. But musically, it was a bit tricky because we didn't get to play as much as we used to. You know, our, our playing was sort of seemed to be secondary to everything else. I can understand that. Uh, the UK was the home of everything music as far as we were concerned here in Australia. And uh, right. it was there was such a wealth of talent there and such a diversity. It must have been uh, a thrilling environment in which to be playing your craft. Yeah, it was, uh, the UK was like, as you say, it was like a you know, great sort of burgeoning hotbed of all these different bands and singers and talent, various kinds. But that's also when we, you know, we first started to go to America too. So that we that we'd always been influenced very much by all the American music. So obviously, when we went there, we try to catch up with that and you know we were absorbing the newer things that were going on in America as well as all the old things that we always loved so it was you know it was a big melting pot for us 
rightly or wrongly, but certainly understandably, there was a lot of comparison between all the bands and uh, the popular yeah. press at the time wanted to generate a high level of uh, competitiveness and uh, between yeah. all the acts. Was it that competitive or was it more a mateship as you uh, cross paths on the road? Well, I think, you know, it was super competitive. There was a lot of, you know, when you're young, you're very competitive. You know, it's like you always want to win everything, whether it's, you know, football or, you know, cricket or table tennis, you always want to win. And there was a lot of competitiveness. Then, of course, there was a lot of cooperation and there was a lot of, you know, shared experiences. You know, we're all in the same boat together. And and so there was a, it was a lot of both when you look back on it, that though everyone was competitive, we all shared so much and, Especially when we're in America, when we meet up with other bands, we'd be we'd be kind of compare experiences and things like that. So, you know, it was both things, I think. And it was, you know, what it was when you're young it is always super competitive, and the press always exaggerates it and everything. But you know, for instance, with the Beatles, we always had a lot of competitiveness, but we also had a lot of friendship and admiration too. Let's move on to your first tour of Australia, 1965. And at that time, bands worked together and toured on the road together. And this tour, it was the Rolling Stones and Roy Orbison, an unusual combination. Yeah, it was pretty strange. I mean, Roy is a, you know, he was a really great sort of pop singer. He was from the country. He's a country singer, I guess. But if you think about his records, they were quite um, ahead of their time, you know, like, Pretty Woman has the same beat as Satisfaction, you know? And um, that was very novel at the time. And it has this very interesting guitar line and everything. And he had an amazing band. So the, it, the, he had some, some incredible songs to play. So though he, you know, he didn't really dance like, you know, Elvis, he was, he had a great sort of catalogue of beautiful songs to play and a, a lovely voice. So, we were great admirers of him, and he was super popular. Certainly was. At that time as well, bands worked very hard for their money. Not that they don't work hard for their money these days, but it wasn't unusual to be doing two or three shows per day. I take it that's something you don't miss at all? Well, the thing is, that though, yes, it was hard work doing like two or three shows a day, but really not so often. The shows weren't long like they are now. They were very short. I bet if you went, if you look back on those, the shows we did in 96, the, the early shows, 65 or whatever, you know, they probably weren't more than 45 minutes long. If you look at the set list, which I'm not looking at, but if you did, <laughs> the, you'd see that they were super short. We would just do 45 minutes. That was the max. And when we started out doing theaters, we do four songs. Well, we can do four songs two or three times a day. It's not a big problem. So... It's very different now. We are expected to do much, much longer, and you know, which is fine. But it, in those days, you weren't. So, in one way, it's a lot of work. But in, you know, you were young, and you just did what you liked. In those days, as well as the uh, the crowds became louder and larger, it was often difficult to actually uh, be heard above the crowd. The PA systems and uh, on-stage amplification wasn't really that much louder than your average domestic system these days. No, well, no, and that's the thing. They were. They weren't really meant for playing rock music through, really. It wasn't until, like, 1969 that, that it started to become a proper professional business as far as sound systems concerned. But people didn't know any better, and, and we didn't know any better, and I can't imagine people could have heard very much. 
very early days of Australian rock throughout the 60s as well. There wouldn't have been yeah. too many bands that made it across the UK. And somewhat contradictory is the fact that uh, two bands that managed to do so in the 60s were The Seekers, which were fundamentally a folk act. And the other act, of course, is The Easy Beats. Do you have recollections of either of those two acts? Blimey, you're really testing my Australian cultural knowledge. Um, well, I, yeah, I've heard of both of them. I think the Easy Beats we probably played with on TV. You know, I seem to remember them. The Seekers I heard of. I always remember um, Pub With No Beer, though. <laughs> it was like number one record in England. The late Slim Dusty. <laughs> Your tours here, Mick, have uh, always coincided with our summer. Is that just sheer coincidence, or do you engineer it that way? Probably intentional, isn't it? a good time to tour the summer so you know we just did some outdoor shows in england i was rather kind of worried about the english summer which is not that re reliable and i had all my rain wear and my special shoes and boots all ready to go and then it turned out to be you know like 30 degrees in every gig and beautiful and didn't need any of it so you know it's always great to play summer Summer also coincides with the cricket season and you're renowned as a, uh, a fan of the game. Uh, how did it feel yeah. to you when you first played on the MCG, a venue which I'm sure would have been part of your thinking from when you were a kid? Yeah. Well, pretty amazing to play at these places. I mean, it's always like, especially these very historical grounds. I mean, you know, they were obviously changed over the years. But I'm very into these, you know, different stadiums that we played in around the world. You know, we played in some incredible historic places, you know, lots of places that have held wonderful sporting events like the MCG, you know, the Olympic Games stadiums going back to before the war still functioning, you know, and all that sort of thing. Australia's got some really great ones. What other memories and recollections and feelings do you have towards Australia? And you, you have a familial connection with Sydney in particular as well. Um... Yeah, well, my mother's family was the first one that emigrated to Australia was like 1832, which is quite a long time ago by Australian standards. And, you know, lots of my family have emigrated there since then. And my mother was born in Sydney. And my grandfather, who I never met, unfortunately, but he lived in Sydney and died before I ever went there. He lived in Sydney, so I've got lots of relations I'm going to catch up with when I get there. I'm sure they're all looking forward to it and baking up a storm in preparation for it. Uh, another yeah, I'm sure. Another connection with you and Australia is uh, your role as Ned Kelly in the movie that was released in the late 60s, early 70s. Your recollections yeah. of that? Well, that was, a, I remember very well. It was a very, you know, somewhat difficult and harrowing experience, but it was also a lot of fun. Living in the country at when I was shooting there at Braidwood and so on, it was pretty, that was, it was very enjoyable. It was different because most people visiting Australia on a tour, like, you know, they never get to see anything of Australia like that, like I saw sleeping in a horse barn most of the time. And that was a pretty good experience and seeing Australia in that way. Did that trip off your uh, interest in the movie industry, something which you've continued since then? Well, I've, I made a movie before that called Performance, which is, um, had been out in England. And, uh, you know, I still do lots of things to do with movies, produce movies, produce documentaries. I'm, I'm producing a biopic about James Brown at the moment, um, which is being shot in Mississippi as we speak. So I'll be visiting the set there in a few days. So, so that's a lot of fun. This tour comes off the uh, the back or of your 50th anniversary tour, or it's a continuation yeah. of it. Needless to say, uh, it's a silly question, 
I don't know that you would have imagined in 1962-63 that you'd still be doing it 50 years later. To what do you attribute the longevity of the band? Um, the answer is that if, you know, people still want to see the band and, you know, we still play. You know, if, if no one wants to see us, we're, we'll just play for ourselves, you know. But, um, so I think it's like we're very lucky and we're quite hardworking, but it's really, I, we're very lucky too and we're very, you know, we're so appreciative of people coming back to see us. You know, either they see us for the first time or they see us for the tenth time or second time. You know, we we really think it's amazing. And, you know, the 50 year was last year and now we're moving on. But it's pretty amazing for us and it's a pretty big milestone for us. But, uh, we're, you know, we're very appreciative of, of everyone coming out to see us. Mick, thank you so much for that. I greatly appreciate you, it. Cheers. All the best. Thank you.